Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, there's a recent Supreme Court ruling uh, that said that the president cannot just decide to pay off student debt by himself. He needs an act of Congress to do it. And well, I kind of wonder what that means to the other thing that the president did on this issue, which is to defer student debt payments at his own discretion. Uh, during the early parts of the COVID crisis, Congress passed legislation that said students didn't have to pay their student loans uh, and, uh, and their debts wouldn't grow during, uh, during the pause. But after that expired, the president said that this deferment goes on until he decides to end it. So today I'm joined by an attorney who is challenging this. Uh, Shang Li is the litigation counsel of the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Uh, but I also want to know about what this means to the broader question about the shifts in the, bal uh, in the balance and separation of powers. Uh, Shang, welcome. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Can the president defer student debt payments at his own discretion? Well, the Supreme Court uh, pretty much said no in, in handing down the Nebraska v. Biden decision. Uh, look, I mean, that, that decision, again, dealt with uh, the one-time half-a-trillion-dollar cancellation. It didn't deal with the pause that's been going on. Um, but if you read the dissent closely, Justice Kagan uh, pretty much said, hey, the reasoning of the majority opinion would also shut down uh, the student loan pause. And that's why she doesn't think that it that they should have done it though. Not that that, that's true. She would have preferred both policies to be uh, to continue, but I think she even she understands that if one falls, the other does as well. Um, and, and perhaps I don't know if you listeners would enjoy a little table setting here, but uh, just by way of background, um, when when the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic hit back in March twenty twenty, uh, the Department of Education decided to put a pause on all student loan. Uh, repayments. So that meant if you were a borrower, you didn't have to repay your loans on a monthly basis like normally you did. Uh, and, and perhaps more importantly for the, for the Treasury, interest stopped accruing on your loans. Uh, so essentially there was a monthly uh, cancellation of loans equal to the amount of interest that accrued. Uh, that pause has been going on for over three years now. Uh, and the CBO has, that's the Congressional Budget Office, has estimated it costs about $5 billion a month. If you add that all up, it gets pretty close to $200 billion of interest that just never accrued on people's loans. So it's a huge fiscal policy that the president just decided to make at his own discretion. Exactly. And what's interesting is that at the time, uh, nobody thought to challenge it, even though it was incredibly expensive. Uh, and it hurt a lot of uh, businesses' bottom lines, including businesses whose job is to refinance student loans. So you have, you know, like SoFi and other banks that make money by taking your student loans and repackaging them and giving you a, a lower interest rate. Uh, but, you know, they can't beat zero. So, <laughs> so you know, they, they stop getting that sort of business. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, uh, someone did decide to challenge this. You did. Why? We did. And, and it was interesting that it lasted so long, that so, for so long people just didn't challenge this. And it actually, uh, to be honest, I just think it wasn't on folks' radars to challenge until last year, uh, in 2022 August, when the president announced an even bigger cancellation policy uh, where he said, I'm going to use 
some, an authority under this statute that he found from 20 years ago uh, to wipe out uh, between ten dollars and $20,000 of student loans, just completely wipe out, not a pause, just canceled uh, for, you know, 40 plus million borrowers. And that was going to be estimated to be between four hundred billion, some say five hundred billion. Uh, but you know, at that point, it's you know, they, they say it starts to add up to real money. Um, and so, when that policy was announced, a lot of folks challenged uh, challenged that cancellation, including uh, NCLA. Um, and that's the, the case that was finally the Supreme Court finally decided. But it's only only you know, I think it was that challenge when the president kind of maybe jumped the shark and, and did something that really got on people's nerves. And uh, and brought those challenges that pe- then then everyone said, wait a second, there's also this pause that's been going on. That that seems to be problematic too, especially when the president um, justified the pause under the same statute that was used to uh, to justify uh, the the 2022 um, you know super one time forgiveness policy. Yeah. So my understanding of this this whole thing is that when congressional authorization expired and the president just decided to keep doing uh, keep doing this thing. A lot of people have said that looks very suspicious, but we're just not sure who could challenge it even if they wanted to, because this is like a classic concentrated benefits diffuse cost issue, which is, you know, we know who's benefiting from this, who it's costing. Does it cost anyone in particular? Can you just challenge this? That's that was a more difficult question. That's so right. even though a lot of people thought that this doesn't look like the president can do this, a bigger question is okay, but who, who can stop him? Yeah, I was hoping we wouldn't go through these the the, <laughs> the judicial doctrine of standing, uh, but but here we go. And and one of the re- yeah, you're absolutely right. One of the reasons uh, it took a while to get these policies challenged is uh, is this doctrine called standing, which says you actually can't um, go and challenge a federal policy unless that policy injures you in some way. Um, and and certainly uh, and certainly we believe that it, it, you know. And, and the way that, that this policy worked is, uh, is that because it benefited student borrowers, they weren't the ones being injured. So the question is, who is being injured? Um, and I think, you know... Besides basic principles of separation. Of exactly. So, so for the, for the one-time policy, the Supreme Court said, well, you have servicers, such as this Missouri agency, a servicer uh, that... Uh, uh, gets paid by the government by the number of loans they process and service, um, they're injured because if you forgive a bunch of loans, some of them are going to go to zero, and some of those accounts will be shut down. And if the company is you know, being paid per account per year, then it's getting paid less. And that financial injury is, um, is sufficient for standing. Now, I, I would argue that, uh, that, again, as I mentioned, these refinance companies had standing all along. Um, because nobody's going to take advantage of their services or their loans are getting canceled. Nobody's going to take uh, advantage of their services if they don't have to pay interest on their loans. And yet they didn't sue for this many years, even though they were taking hits on their bottom line. And, and that, I think, has less to do with this, this concept of judicial standing and more to do with sort of more um, just uh, kind of political, uh, political you know, balances and... Uh, uh, I think if you're a bank uh, and you may have uh, probably all your employees have student loans, or at least your new hires have student loans. Uh, many, many of you know, the media is it was very pro, you know, 
uh, alleviating student loans. So even if it's illegal, even if it hurts your bottom line, um, maybe you're not inclined to um, trigger public ire uh, to, to even to help your own business. Um, but that may have changed when, when I think they saw the, the, uh, uh, the public turn, um, both legally and in popular opinion, turn against the, uh, against the president for trying to just wipe out half a trillion dollars of loans at, at the same time. I mean, do you think that when they started doing this, they considered the risk that this, they, they would simply have their authority revoked through Supreme Court action? I mean, it requires speculating about motives. And what, yeah, what I think, but I mean, it seems like a, a pretty extraordinary decision to just say, I, I, I can spend whatever I want to um, when most spending has to get passed through Congress. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, all spending does. This is, you know, <laughs> this is Article One uh, makes that pretty clear. And I and I want to go back a little bit in that and say the Supreme Court said the president doesn't have the power to forgive forgive student loans on mass. Uh, and that was portrayed as the, in the media, I think, as, as a sort of a controversial decision. You had the 6-3 split with Republican appointees on one side and Democratic appointees on the other side. Um, and there's a lot of debate about the wisdom and the content of, of the cancellation policy. Uh, but I want to kind of remind you know, listeners that, that the Supreme Court's decision actually had nothing to do with the wisdom of student loan cancellation or the specific content of, of the Biden administration's policy. Uh, and in fact, in many ways, it, that decision may have been the most or the least controversial uh, of this term, arguably, because all Justice Roberts' majority opinion did really was is reiterate what you know Democratic Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said in 2021. And I, I just pulled her quote up here, and, and she says, "People think that the President of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. That has to be an act of Congress." That's essentially what Justice Roberts said too. Uh, so it's, I don't think it's a very controversial decision. And in fact, in in you know grade school and high school civics classes everywhere, students are taught the separation of powers in our Constitution, and that art, under Article One, you know, new laws and new spending must come from Congress. So how are you going to you know how are you going to appropriate money to pay for half a trillion dollars? You have to go through Congress. You can't do this without Congress. And so it's just not a controversial. You know, idea that the president doesn't have unilateral power to forgive loans, um, and, and which which then goes back to your other statement about well, why did he do it? <laughs> and, and and that you know, and that um, and I, I think he knew he couldn't do it, and the reason is uh, he asked Congress first. You know, he, he campaigned on can- canceling loans, and we got in office. He repeatedly asked Congress, and, and only when Congress repeatedly said no. Um, did he then go back and say, oh, actually, there's this 20-year-old law uh, that nobody really paid attention to that, that gives me this power all along. So if he, if he really thought he had this power, why would he you know, re- waste all this time asking for Congress instead of just unilaterally acting in the first place? Yeah, and I think you were talking about the reaction to, uh, to that court decision that uh, said the president doesn't have that, this power. And I think it really, like, this is, this is my media platform. I get a shout it from the rooftops. This means that Congress can't, like, all this means is that if you want student debt payments, you have to pass it through Congress. That seems like a pretty basic thing. The takeaway uh, from this court decision should be that 
if you want student debt payments, you have to pass this through Congress. Congress remains in control of the, of the of fiscal policy of authorizing federal expenditures. This should be what all, all that we're talking about in, in reinterpreting this. But that's not actually what I'm hearing um, uh, from media's out, or outlets outside of this one. Uh, can you tell me about the reaction uh, uh, to that decision? Yeah, I, I'm really, I, I you know, share your frustration and confusion at this. Uh, and it should be. It, it, there are many, if student loan uh, cancellation or some types of relief were really popular, you would see voters, you know, pressuring their representatives in Congress to enact some kind of relief. And, you know, I'm not against that. Uh, you know, that could be, there are many borrowers who are struggling and, and perhaps uh, there's a way for Congress to kind of figure out um, how, how best to address that. Uh, but the problem is Congress is actually in a really good position to do that uh, because they can, they can, you know, look at, you know, what the federal budget is, look at, you know, at the time there was a looming debt ceiling. What does that mean? How much can they spend because of that? Um, and, and what all, all the, all of the national, uh, the national priorities and, and figure out where student loan cancellation fits into that. And they can target it towards the people who are in most needing uh, of it. Whereas what the administration did is, uh, uh, let's talk about the August 22 policy. It was just a one-size-fits-all policy. They drew a line that says, well, we don't want to give the super rich, you know, a, a handout. So if you if your household makes less, more than 250000 you don't get it. But, you know, if you make $247,000, you and your wife together, then you get this, you know, get this benefit at taxpayer expense. Uh, you know, that seems a little problematic. And, and the studies have looked at that and, and found that, you know, this really benefits um, some of the upper income individuals much more than uh, lower income ones, who many of whom didn't graduate college, and other lower income uh, uh, borrowers even, who actually have other ways of getting forgiveness, such as the income-driven uh, repayment plan that, that says if your income is low enough, you, you, it, you don't have to pay as much. Uh, so those guys were getting okay. some let me let me stop you there. Benefits this, already. This is an important point I want to recapsulate, which is like the president just decided that he was going to do this, uh, do have this plan. The plan had whatever features he decided, and if it went through Congress, it probably would have looked uh, very different. But it was just an arbitrary presidential rule that said, "Okay, I, I'm taking this power and I'm and I'm uh, spending money uh, in these particular ways," That's which right. is an explicit thing of saying that, you know, uh, Congress, who is supposed to be better attuned to the uh, popularity of, of their constituents, uh, should be more sensitive to these things. Uh, whereas uh, um, if you just let the president do it, it's probably not going to be uh, as targeted, at least. And, and Congress did act on this when the, when that pause, the interest and repayment pause was enacted. That was actually Congress. Secretary DeVos did it first, but two weeks later, Congress says, you know, that's OK, we're going to do it, too. And that was legal. It, they enacted a six-month pause because at that time during the pandemic, nobody knew what was going on. And Congress made a deliberate decision that that six-month is what, you know, whatever that cost is the amount of money that's whatever, you know, groups benefit. That's that's where the chips fall. And they made it – that decision was that not only would the pause last six months, but it would not last more than six months. It was, it was a very set end date. And that was a judgment of Congress reflecting voters. Whereas then, you know, it was actually Donald Trump – who decided, you know what, I'm going to extend this. And then when Biden came to power, he's like, I'm going to extend this too over and over again. Uh, and and that, that pause actually, in some ways, is, is even more unfair than the proposed um, cancellation 
that was struck down by the Supreme Court because number one, uh, it didn't have an income cap at all. You could be making a million dollars a year and, and you didn't have to pay interest on your loans. Uh, and number two, because the benefit was directly proportional to the amount of interest you would have to be pay paying, the people with the highest uh, amount of borrowing benefited the most. And those were people who took out very high loans to go, you know, like myself, who went to law school and medical school and got out and were making very high salaries. Uh, you know, first year Wait, associates at big school and medical school. <laughs> well, not you know the, the, <laughs> that group of people did. Like first yeah. year associate salaries were rising throughout yeah. the uh, throughout the pandemic, um, and well, I think it was. And that and that's another thing that uh, it's part of the federal loan programs is that an undergraduate, there are limits about how much you can borrow. On the graduate level, there are no limits. Uh, yeah, and, and it sort of, you know, th that was also a congressional decision. And it sort of makes sense in that if you're borrowing money to study, you know, an art history degree at Oberlin, maybe you're not going to pay that off. But if you're borrowing money to go to, you know, Harvard Law School or something, you're a pretty good, you know, you're a pretty good bet to pay off your loans. Um, and... And ultimately, it was the I think it was the Center for uh, uh, sorry Committee for uh, Responsible Federal Budget. They analyzed this and they found the average law student who benefited from this got about forty thousand dollars of benefits uh, from not having to pay their interest, whereas the average undergraduate not having to pay their interest only about five thousand. The average associate's degree about two thousand, uh, and for the really you know, people who really need it, those are the people who never finished their degrees, dropped out, and were saddled with debt. They got even less. Uh, so, so it's just a very untargeted policy that if you think, if, if you ask Congress to provide debt relief, uh, one would think they would have reached a different sort of balance. Yeah. Uh, so I do want to try to reiterate that point a little bit or encapsulate it in a different way, which is, um, so let Congress is, uh, both Congress and, and, and the president are trying to find ways to benefit the public with their actions. And they think that, or, and the president at least thinks that even outside of uh, congressional authority, he's got a plan that is going to help, uh, help help some people who need help. And in this case, the plan that he came up with isn't especially targeted at people who need help. Uh, the, uh, that is, the, there are there may be some people who struggle with their debt payments. That matters very little to the plan that he came up with. Um, and, and so that. And, and if we had gone through the normal process of congressional approval, it probably would have been targeted more at people who, who need, need help. Uh, but I, I think this kind of comes back to the broader point that I want to get to, which is this was the president just saying that he has, fisc uh, he has the ability to spend money without congressional authorization, something that seems like very few other presidents have ever tried, and that the Supreme Court, at least when... when uh, when looking at the debt payment portion of of his uh, plan to help student debt, said that he did not have this authority. Um, is that a win for separation of powers? Oh, for sure. I mean, look, the, the, the separation, the Congress. I'm sorry. The Constitution places spending powers in Congress for really for a reason. It's not like a formality. Uh, the framers were trying to prevent essentially the presidency from becoming a king. Uh, remember, before the Constitution, there was the Articles of Confederation, which didn't even have an executive branch. That didn't work out, so they decided, well, we need to have an executive branch, but we need to put safeguards. We just fought a war to escape tyranny, to escape a king who can tax and spend however he wants. 
uh, what we what you know they decide what they need is put you know these these guardrails to prevent uh, that sort of abuse. And one of those is to ensure that the power to spend money uh, is separated from uh, from this this office they feared <laughs> that could be it could become you know a, an office used by a tyrant. Uh, the power of spending money is separated from that and put into the most politically accountable. Uh, branch of government, the legislative branch, uh, specifically the House of Representatives, that's directly elected by uh, by the people, and because uh, because otherwise, if the president could spend money as much as he wants, um, he could you know do what King George was doing, which is to give royal largesse to his cronies, um, and, and you know obviously this time was cancellation of debt, but that's not really any different from just taking money uh, and and handing handing out cash. Uh, because you know, imagine if the because if you can just cancel debt, that's that's the, you know from an accounting perspective, it's identical to putting you know putting dollars into uh, one's bank account. In fact, that's partly why this policy was very popular among student borrowers. And you said this is something that um, it's not especially partisan. Uh, President Trump did it, and President Biden have done it. Have there been some other examples of of presidents just saying? I have the authority. Don't don't worry about it. I'm going to spend money how I want. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess less so with just uh, this might be the most outrageous example in that it uh, uh, it was directly taking money from taxpayers and giving uh, giving it to a favored group, which uh, seems particularly outrageous. But there are kind of bipartisan, especially in the COVID era, uh, bipartisan violation of the separation of powers. Uh, for example. Uh, it was during the president uh, President Trump's uh, administration where he extended uh, a ban. Uh, again, Congress enacted a, a, a temporary ban on, on evictions nationwide because uh, at the time no one knew how COVID was going, but it was meant to be temporary and it expired. And then President Trump extended it over and over again. Uh, and then when, when President Biden came into power, he extended it over and over again. And uh, it got to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, hey, this looks really fishy. Please don't extend it. <laughs> gave, gave the president, President Biden, uh, uh, an out. Just don't extend it, and we won't rule against you. And then, lo and behold, a month later, President Biden extended it again, and the Supreme Court said, "Well, you forced our hand, and had to shut down that eviction uh, moratorium." Um, and and I, I imagine that's um, uh, we might see something of the same because after the Supreme Court just ruled against this particular loan cancellation policy. Uh, the Biden administration over the last week has announced several new student loan initiatives that are uh, essentially trying to backdoor around the Supreme Court holding and canceling loans in, in other unlawful ways. And I can't imagine the federal judiciary will, uh, will be pleased by, by that. Mm -hmm. But that's, I mean, it's part of this broader trend, which is like, we all learn the basic principles of separation of powers in you know, our, civic, our high school civics uh, courses. And this is an essential part of the American system. And yet, uh, those thing, that separation of power seems to have eroded an awful lot, almost to the point of irrelevancy, although not to irrelevancy, as you can see from this. I mean, is this just a couple of steps to putting the genie back in the bottle and, and really making these separate and distinct branches of government that have separate and distinct powers? Yeah, I think so. And one of the things the Roberts courts has been doing over the last, oh, I would say maybe four or five years, has been more clearly delineating 
uh, the respective powers of the branch of the government. Uh, for the first time, really strengthening those those guardrails for the first time in maybe fifty or sixty or seventy years. Uh, you know, I think it's I think partly because it's it's uh, uh, the administrative state and executive branch uh, has you know they've been given a lot of flexibility by prior courts, and I think they've uh, maybe overstayed their welcome or or overextended a little bit, uh, and uh, and you're seeing a reaction by the courts to to cabin uh, executive agencies to their you know to more constitutionally appropriate roles. Uh, and one of those the doc, one of the doctrines that's that's grown from this it's what's called the major questions doctrine, um, which says if an agency cannot generally act on its own to enact a, a, a policy that has a major political or economic consequence unless that agency can point to specific and clear congressional authority. Uh, and this is a reaction to Congress over many years have delegated very broad, use very broad language to delegate um, regulatory power to the agencies and the agencies have, you know, seized upon those some broad delegations to say, aha, we can do X, Y, and Z, which clearly, you know, we, we wouldn't think Congress actually gave them this power. And just an example for this particular uh, case, the statute at issue was this 2003 statute that Congress enacted called the HEROES Act. That's a reaction to the, the wars going on in Afghanistan and, and Iraq at the time saying, look, uh, service members and uh, people affected by war uh, and, and similar sorts of national emergencies uh, may have trouble paying off their student loans. So what we're going to say is the secretary can waive or modify uh, provisions of federal student loan statutes for people affected by, you know, I think it's war, military operations, and, and other national emergencies. Uh, and so, you know, in one sense, that could be a very targeted sort of, you know, narrow statute for, you know, if you're if you're going abroad to fight terrorists or if there was a, an attack in America and you lost your home and your job, um, something like that, you can get some student loan relief. Um, but uh, but but you wouldn't think you didn't think Congress, you know, at that time, uh, by the way, it was all of them. <laughs> it was, it was, I think it was passed unanimously or it was maybe one dissenter. Uh, you know, you wouldn't think, was, you know, everybody would have said, well, actually, what we meant to do is to give the secretary of, of education, you know, unilateral authority to control half a trillion dollars or more uh, and give give that back to whenever they want. Yeah, I think that's um, uh, that's. Interesting. That's um, that that's worth uh, that's worthwhile of, that, of having that clarification that's out there. And the the loophole that Congress is taking is that um, they say, look, we we're passing we're passing a law and we're giving the exact we're explicitly giving the executive a bunch of different authorities within the legislation that we pass, and that's one of the reasons why presidents can feel like they can they can do whatever, and there are actually political reasons why that is. Like a lot of uh, congressmen don't really want to be held accountable for the precise things that may not uh, not be popular in order to attain the ends that they're requiring from the administrative agency. Like it's, uh, and this is one of the problems that we have with this convolution of the separation mm. of powers, is that like uh, one of the reasons why they've eroded is because Congress doesn't want to legislate. That's hard. Uh, what yeah, do you say to them? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's, and I think. You know, I think this, there's law review articles to be written about this because for the last century, before this turn in the Roberts Court, uh, I think the courts relied on Congress to police the boundary between the executive and legislative branch under the premise that, well, 
if the executive branch is encroaching on Congress, uh, Congress will fight back. So there's no reason for the courts to really get involved. Uh, but what, what the courts have kind of learned is what happens is that's not what happens at all. Instead, what happens is that uh, if you're an individual congressman, you would love to just delegate broad power to the executive agency so you don't have to make hard decisions. Um, instead, you can instead you don't want to have to run for election or, or worse yet nowadays run for primary on your, a legislative record because legislation typically requires compromise and again those sort of hard decisions and uh, and if you compromise with the other side to pass a law to solve a problem you you know the the flank whether you're left or right your flank is going to be mad at you because you didn't give them everything they want in fact you couldn't have you couldn't have passed the law if you gave them everything you want. And so, uh, so then, then you're going to get primaried. You're going to face a harder election if you have a legislative record. Much better to go on Twitter and scream at people than to actually accomplish legislation. So Congress is happy then to shirk their legislative responsibilities and, de- and, and instead let, let the executive branch take action. If the executive branch takes an action that they like, like uh, that, that some extreme action they like, that's great. You can point to and say, "Hurrah! We gave all these student, you know, student borrowers a ton of money. Vote, you know, look, look how good our party is." And if the executive branch does something you don't like, again, you can go on Twitter and scream about it, and that's sort of how you get <laughs> get donations and voters out to the polls. Um, so there's this political dynamic that I'm not sure what to do with, but it, but the courts have certainly found found it to be frustrating, and and have started acting to, um, you know, because every everything. We, we can think of these rulings as against the executive branch, the courts stopping the executive branch from doing X or Y. Uh, but the, one other way to look at it is the courts telling Congress, hey, do your jobs. You know, like you can't let the you can't let the president power do it. Uh, and, and, you know, you have to go and, and do it yourself. If you want student loans, enact a student loan debt relief program. If you want, uh, um, you know, more environmental protections, enact more environmental protections. We're not saying you can't, you know, we're just saying uh, you're the one who must do it. You can't, you can't uh, uh, put that responsibility on someone else. If you want to ban gas stoves, you have the ability to pass legislation to pass. Precisely. So I think it's not just Congress who doesn't want to legislate or, or take over some of those powers. I think a lot of our fellow citizens think it's great that uh, presidents get unlimited authority to do whatever they want, at least when their guy is in charge. And I mean, to me, this is like an obviously partisan, obviously wrong, and that we should do something about this. The separation of power stuff is, is really important. Um, but, you know, this, this partisan desire to, to, um, uh, uh, to defer to the president is something that does extend from the Capitol to the White House. Is in like when, when it's your guy who's doing the determining over what power it is, you want to give him all the authority in the world to do whatever he wants. Um, so are legislators ever going to go back to insisting upon their constitutional mandate to legislate? Or is this something that like courts are just going to have to force them to figure out, uh, figure out how to do? Well, uh, certainly the courts have started to force them, and I think, in you know, it's only been a few years, so I, the, the the jury's out. But uh, I, I feel like there's actually been um, some, quite a few legislative compromises in the last few years that have um, been accomplished. Whether it's the you may disagree with some of the content, but we saw like the infrastructure 
recovery act we we saw the debt ceiling negotiation come come through with some sort of compromise um we have for example a hot button cultural war topic uh gay marriage gay marriage there was a the statutory provision uh, a protection for gay marriage which i think uh people would have thought 10 years ago could never happen because it was such a hot top a hot button cultural war topic um but now that that uh, the Supreme Court has basically said we're going to let legislatures, whether you know whether it's state legislatures in, in you know abortion cases or whether it's federal legislature in um, in, in you know student loan or, or vaccine mandate sort of cases, the, that this power belongs to legislatures. You know, we, we've actually seen some some legislative uh, progress in maybe not all the things we you know each voter wants, but uh, in things where there where. Congress could reach a consensus. Uh, so you and your colleagues are really trying to invigorate this this, base, uh, this basic civics uh, thing that I think we all should uh, we all should think is, is important. You've got a bunch of cases that have been challenging the automatic authority of the administrative state and the broad tendency to let the executive branch be the officer and enforcer interpretation of law. Um, You've had some success on this, right? I mean, this this has been something we have, yeah, and it's it's uh, been very encouraging the last few years. Uh, uh, you know, our, not just our organization, but our allied organizations as well, uh, bring these cases up, and it's. Uh, um, I think the federal judiciary is, is more receptive to these arguments, uh, in part because I think the executive branch in regulating and in adjudicating have uh, you know pushed pushed the envelope so far. That uh, that there's a growing consensus uh, around the notion that they've they've uh, uh, you know grown, gone too big for the breaches, I guess. What? How does it feel to be making a difference in this really important area? Oh, it feels yeah, it feels terrific, and being part of uh, part of this part of this process, and it's. Uh, it, it, it is slow. It's because, you know, working on, on these things is a case-by-case. Case. One precedent builds upon another. Um, you know, this student loan decision didn't come from, you know, just itself. There was, there's been a line of cases, uh, you know, at the lower courts and in the Supreme Court applying the major questions doctrine, applying textual, uh, you know, textual canons of interpreting, uh, interpreting statutes that led to this outcome. Uh, and so, so each, each, you know, each victory that's maybe, you know, broadcast by, uh, uh, by the media, uh, I think you can look behind that and you can see there's, there's probably, you know, dozens of cases that maybe don't get so much attention, but are, you know, as very important to, to that overall result. Shang, thank you for coming on to help us understand this issue and good luck in your efforts to shift the Overton window. Thanks, James.